Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone, I'm Shauna Kaur. Welcome to our Tipping Point podcast where we discuss all things climate. This week we spoke to UCD's Dr. Kara Augustenberg about the government's must-do-better report card for their work on the climate crisis. So we're here with Dr. Kara Augustenberg, UCD Assistant Professor at Landscape Studies and Environmental Policy. Cara is part of the team that scored the Irish government on their climate and environmental performance for the second time this year, with their grade falling from a C plus last year to a C this year. So Cara, why do you think it's so important that their performance is highlighted and scored in this way? Yeah, well, we had a, a program for government that was written by the government in 2020 when they when they started their tenure, and it actually included nearly 300 environmental commitments across climate and biodiversity and water quality and all sorts of different topics. So it, it was lauded as the, the greenest program for government we'd ever seen. Now, that's not saying that it was enough, and that's not saying that all of their commitments were, were perfect. Um, a lot of them are, are quite vaguely written or, or maybe not ambitious enough, but uh, there was still a lot of commitments. And these are the things that the government said that they themselves would do if, if they were put into, into government. So it's really important to keep them accountable to their own promises. And that's what this report card by Friends of the Earth has been doing for the last two years. So the first year, I think we gave them uh, a little bit of extra leeway because it was only their first year in government. And obviously they were dealing with the COVID crisis at the same time. And so they got a C plus overall. But now as they're you know getting into their stride, we would expect to see them really pushing those commitments and getting things done. And unfortunately, there's there's been some delay and, and really on the implementation side, so while they have lots of promises, actually implementing those promises on the ground is happening too slowly, particularly when we're seeing that the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are really raging out of control across the world at this stage. So the urgency is definitely there in the same way that that it was for the COVID crisis and the Ukrainian conflict. And what, what do you think they're doing well and what could they do much better at? Well, where we saw the most improvement uh, this year was in nature and biodiversity. They had they had been ranked uh, 4.5 out of 10 in that area. In the first year, we really saw no progress in that area. Uh, but this year, they started to really deliver on, on a number of their commitments, including forming the Citizens' Assembly for Biodiversity uh, and restoring the funding of the National Parks and Wildlife, which is the organization that is charged with protecting a lot of our biodiversity through our national parks and through wildlife conservation. And, and their budget had been decimated through the, the last economic recession. So it was really good to see that their budget's being restored and that a review of the MPWS mandate uh, is now being implemented. Uh, so we saw a lot of progress in that area, still not enough to address the crisis, but certainly it was good to see movement on their commitments. Uh, and then we saw uh, some progress in air quality in particular. Uh, they finally pushed out the smoky coal ban nationwide over the summer, which didn't really get the media attention that it had been getting 
in the months prior. But uh, that was certainly a, a big achievement in the, if you think about the fact that three governments before that had all committed to do that and had all failed, uh, largely because of litigation from, from some fossil fuel manufacturers and sellers that, that didn't want that to go through. So that, that took a lot of bravery, I think, on, on behalf of the government to get that through. Uh, but at the same time, they have committed to do a nationwide clean air strategy, and uh, they failed to roll that out, and it's very, very much delayed. So their marks have stayed the same in air quality. Uh, between 2021 and 2022, they've gotten a seven out of 10. Uh, and, and their marks have stayed the same in uh, waste, in, in particular, um, waste and circular economy. But it's been an 8.5 out of 10 for the last two years, in that even though on the ground, we don't see our waste system really changing. When you look at the policies and the foundations that are being laid, we as the expert judges feel confident that in the next year or so, you'll start to see things like deposit and return schemes for plastic bottles uh, coming in nationwide. And you'll start to see the actual visible evidence that they are changing the way we deal with waste here in the country. That's brilliant. I mean, the smoky coal ban was an interesting one. I think it's sort of veered from this is a positive thing to then the, the bit of backlash that always kind of happens in Ireland, doesn't it? Like Pete is our culture. And, you know, you saw, I, I don't know if you saw it, but there was actually a shop that started marketing their peat as compact soil and, you know, and people laugh and they shrug it off. I mean, what's your view on that? Well, that issue received a lot of noise, uh, probably in, in the months prior to the summer recess. Um, and I think partially because we saw division in the government. So we obviously we saw uh, the leader of the Green Party trying to push through this legislation. And then we had Leo Varadkar kind of advocating against it, which was a big shock, especially considering he was a, a medical doctor um, and, and kind of saying it, it shouldn't go ahead. And, and um, so it looked like even the government itself was was splintered in in trying to get this over the line so it was really remarkable that in the end they prevailed and and that that is happening because you know if, the, if even the government themselves couldn't agree on this very kind of politically contentious issue um it, it didn't look like it was going to survive so I, I think that's definitely um something they should be proud of and 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 a good sign for for the future when it comes to air quality and with the urgency of everything in the climate do you think the government needs to do a bit of a better job then in once they decide to approve something, they need to come up with a united front to actually get the public on board with it. Like you said, you know, splinters in the government and then people in the community were like, well, what is it? Are we going to go with it? Are we not going to go with it? Yeah, I think uh, particularly on climate, what, what we saw in the first year was a very united government and 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 particularly in pushing climate new climate legislation through. So they got seven out of 10 in the first year on climate. And that was largely because they actually amended the climate legislation to be much stronger and to put some real um, emissions reductions targets across every sector uh, of, of society into the leg legislation, which was badly needed. And it was the main reason why we weren't seeing emissions drop in Ireland, even though we had signed all these UN climate agreements. So um, we were quite happy that they managed to, to do a lot in the first year in terms of government and kind of governance and setting the, the rules of the game, as we say. But unfortunately, then in the second year, we would want to see those rules being implemented and we would want to see those plans and the climate action plan actually happening. And, and what we're seeing is that, that, that they're, they're not happening. They're certainly not happening fast enough. And I think a perfect example is that the government has put a lot of hopes on electric vehicles as a way of dealing with our transport 
transport problems. Now we can argue whether that's an appropriate uh, focus or not. A lot of us think that the focus should be much more on active and, and public transport, but we do have this target of having nearly a million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. Uh, it's 2022 now and we have about 45,000 on the road and we don't see any kind of additional measures being put in to maybe uh, end the sale of, of petrol and diesel vehicles or at least make it more expensive that if you're in the privileged position of being able to buy a new petrol or diesel vehicle, uh, maybe you should be having to pay a kind of a syntax or something to do that if you're not choosing to go electric when the time comes to, to get a new car. Um, and, and we're not seeing any kind of measures being rolled out to really uh, reach that target or, or a lot of the other climate targets that have been set forth. So they actually dropped their score this year in climate. They went from a 7.5 in the first year out of 10 to 6 out of 10. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the EVs, because there was a report that came out this week just about that. And the view was that this massive focus on everybody that has a car should swap to have an environmental vehicle isn't going to actually rectify the problem. So this OECD report sort of was saying that we need to be looking at better public transport, better connectedness and actually reusing some of the land that we've set aside for cars for other things. Yeah, that was work that was commissioned by the Climate Change Advisory Council, which I'm a member of. And, and it was great to have the OECD uh, saying something I think we all sort of felt and, and knew instinctively that it's just a very inefficient way to move people around uh, Ireland in these these car, these big cars, which are getting bigger, actually, we're buying bigger and bigger vehicles, and, and tend to be only maybe moving one or two people in them. Uh, and that really, we have to get away from this idea of, of cars are the solution for all of Ireland and, and try and focus much more on public transport and, and active transport. And look, that's easier for some places than others. I think we accept that we're going to need cars in certain parts of Ireland where it's just not economically viable uh, to to bring public transport to every house in Ireland, particularly very rural areas. Uh, and because of our planning system to date, we've we've kind of created created a setup where some houses are very far from from public transport, and they're always going to probably have to have a car. And 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 that's why maybe they are the people we should be giving incentives to to buy electric cars. Uh, but instead, what we find, and I think research out of Trinity by Professor Brian. Caulfield has shown that that the majority of people who are buying these electric cars are, are living in places like South Dublin, where we have access to public transport, and we really shouldn't need a car for most of our journeys. Uh, and and so there's there's a disconnect there between our our focus on on electric vehicles and what really needs to happen regarding public transport and active transport. Yeah, and you spoke a little bit before about the government's climate commitments. How how are they doing with that? Are we meeting them? Or are we not? Um, I, I think in some ways we we've seen you know some improvement in legislation, and we were very glad that over the summer uh, the sectoral targets were were agreed to some extent. Now they they don't adhere to these kind of carbon budgets that that were established and proposed by the Climate Change Advisory Council and agreed on by the government. Um, and and the idea was that the the sectoral targets were supposed to add up so that this carbon budget would be met uh, and our carbon pollution would kind of stay under a certain limit every five years is essentially what that means. And uh, it was very precarious when they were agreeing the sectoral targets and the government potentially could have fallen over them, particularly because of the, the division around the agricultural target. But they did agree targets. And uh, I think the sign of a, a successful uh, deal is probably that no one was happy with that deal. So, yeah. so it's probably 
a, de a decent compromise in that sense. Uh, so, so they are progressing that. But, I, but at this stage now, we we need to see emissions going down. And I think the biggest worry was in the energy sector, in particular, where we saw that coal and oil use tripled uh, last year because of the the demands on energy and and the energy crisis. So, when you're starting to see emissions in the energy sector going up, and that was always our big good news story. We were we were relatively strong on renewable energy. We have 40 percent uh, wind energy in the country now and that is a really good news story and when you're starting to see that rolling backwards it's time to get very concerned uh, about the direction we're heading when it comes to climate yeah i mean i mean the winds in this are absolutely astounding aren't they and if we had a renewable energy system that was or an energy system that was completely renewables people would be paying a tiny proportion of what they're paying in their bills now and i think that message gets lost a little bit in the mix you know so people really often aren't aware that any gas or oil in the system massively skews the price. I know that the renewables we've got are bringing the price down slightly, but if we were working off completely renewables, we'd be talking a fraction of the bills we're paying. Well, part of the problem is that the price is set by uh, the last kilowatt hour that that's purchased, and that's usually uh, gas or you know a fossil fuel based uh, price. So I, I know that the that Eamon Ryan has said that he thinks that we should decouple the price from fossil fuels so that that doesn't have to happen, uh, and and that the wind sector, interestingly today even that they uh, the head of Wind Energy Ireland, Noel Cunniff, was saying that they're quite happy to accept a windfall tax on all these additional profits they're making off the back of the gas price um, that they understand that this isn't fair to consumers and it's very unusual to hear an industry representative saying we're okay with being taxed more uh, but I, I think we can see how confused people are that that they know we have a lot of wind energy they know we have you know maybe 40 percent wind energy and yet our prices are going up and up and up and they don't understand how we can have all this wind energy and still be experiencing the kind of price shocks that you know very fossil fuel based um, societies are are facing uh, and and then i also think it's interesting uh, another thing that noel kind of said just today was that the the planning process for more more renewable energy it's just taking too long so it you know it should take 18 weeks instead it's taking 18 months to get planning for some of these um these renewable energy farms or whatever they are and uh and so we're not going to meet our targets if the planning system continues to take this long and the government has put a lot of emphasis on offshore wind in particular and now we're finding out our ports don't even have the infrastructure right now to be able to uh, support the the development of offshore wind. So we have to upgrade all our ports or, or at least some of our ports too in order to facilitate this. So, you know, there's a lot of obstacles there when it comes to actually implementing all of these great plans in the, in the climate action plan and in the program for government. What what do you think we should be focusing on right now then? What where do you think the main gains could be made? I think we have to urgently reform the planning system that that there's there's no excuse now for 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 delays in, in when we're facing a crisis. So so that needs to be tackled immediately. Uh, and then it's it's across the board trying to roll these things out. And one of the obstacles too is just not having the skilled labor to do it. So if we have all these plans to insulate houses, retrofit houses, put solar panels on schools, whatever it is, uh, you know, install heat pumps, then we need lots of people retrained to be able to do this work. And, and I think we're not quite seeing that that scale up of skilled labor and, and training programs uh, yet. And, and that's going to hold things back until we get that right. What's it like for those courses across the education sector? Would you have any idea? 
I have only seen one announcement uh, of a of a bit of a rollout of more more education in that area, and I think I saw another one by Minister Simon Harris that was specifically focusing on women. That you know, there's a whole cohort of 50% of the population that has tended to not engage in construction jobs, and so they are trying to focus more on recruiting women because because that's a kind of a missed opportunity there. Uh, but that wasn't specifically related to renewables or you know heat pump training, and I mean at this stage if someone is building a new home or renovating a new home they they really shouldn't be putting in a boiler but i think what we're seeing is that the that the people that are out there doing the work really don't know how to put in heat pumps so they're they're still pushing boilers and yeah. gas based boilers uh so we're 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 just not seeing movement in that area in the way we should and agriculture is something close to your heart i think and you know, is one of the main issues when we talk about land use in Ireland, isn't it? It's the highest emitting industry often finds itself at the centre of the storm on climate discussions. We saw that when the sectoral emission ceilings were being set, it was all the focus was on agriculture when actually I think there was only one sector, wasn't it, transport that got a cut at the top end of the scale that was recommended. Everything else was decided on below, but the focus was massively on agriculture. So I saw this week your face to face with some farmers and what you said was well received. So I was just wondering, do you think farmers across Ireland get a bit of a bad rap when it comes to climate? Uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a myth going around that's that's perpetuated by a lot of the media debate that there's a big battle between environmentalists and farmers. And in my own experience, uh, I would say that's not the case in real life. I've had very productive discussions with member representatives from the IFA and and farmers from all sectors. And uh, I know my my fellow colleagues who are also considered environmentalists. Uh, you know, they a lot of them eat meat and dairy and and love Irish food and uh, so I think that battle is actually it's contrived, to be honest, and it, it's it's not a real battle in that sense. But it was incredibly frustrating, uh, particularly over the summer, as the sectoral targets were being agreed, just how much of that kind of discourse was being aired uh, on, on the airwaves and not productive. However, I will say that now we have a target. And as I said before, no, you know, the farmers aren't happy with it. The environmentalists aren't happy with it. The farmers think it's too high. The environmentalists think it's too low. Um, but yet we've agreed. We've agreed on the target. And and one thing that I that I'm you know quite happy about is when I was at this um, FAO conference yesterday that was hosted by the Department of Agriculture. Uh, there was no more fighting about the, the target and the role of methane gas in in global warming. And I think people had accepted that we have a target and we need to figure out how to meet it. Mm -hmm. And so th there's a lot more wanting to work together to meet that target. And I think environmentalists are 100 percent behind the call uh, by farmers that they uh, that they need supports to meet this target, that they need to be incentivized. And look, we've been we've been subsidizing livestock based farming through taxpayer money for decades. Uh, it's not that hard to take that money and use it to do other types of farming instead, be it, you know, farming different products or carbon farming or, you know, contributing to to protecting land or whatever it is. And and a number of the farmers that I've talked to have said they would happily do any of that if the government was willing to pay them for that instead. So I think there are a lot of commonalities. And uh, I do think it's important to keep saying we all know that this is not the fault of, of farmers, that that farmers were following EU and Irish policy, and they were following the incentives that they were given uh, to intensify livestock 
farming and particularly dairy. And uh, and so now we as policymakers need to give them new incentives to, to do things that also uh, keep climate and biodiversity and water quality in mind too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, agriculture, I think it is always sort of centered around farmers, but obviously retailers and producers also have a big role in this sector and the way that farmers are paid. Are they being paid enough for their produce? And do you think that the retailers need to step up here, the producers need to step up and actually give the farmers better prices for what they're growing to maybe help drive that notion down that we need to be producing like massive amounts of meat, massive amounts of dairy and everything else to to feed, I don't know, we, well, we export like 90%, don't we? So we're feeding a lot more people than actually live on the island. So what what do you, what do you think they need to do here? Yeah, I mean, I think we saw last weekend that there were farmers protesting outside Aldi and Lidl and saying that they're not being compensated for the fact that their production costs and their input costs are going up. Uh, and yet these kind of grocery stores want to sell below cost to attract customers. And it's the farmers that are being penalized for that. And, and I think across social media, you saw that environmentalists were saying this is wrong, that farmers should not be uh, punished for these high prices and and we might need to raise food prices uh in order to fairly compensate farmers for the food they're producing or else grocery stores have to take less profits you know and 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 that's uh certainly something that i think needs some intervention and particularly if we're talking about boosting say the horticultural sector in ireland you know we we used to have a lot more apple and mushroom and carrots and potato farming than we do now and if we want to have some of that back and i personally think we do need to have some of that back strictly from a food security point of view as the rest of the world is is experiencing more and more climate change i don't think it's going to be as easy for us to import the vast majority of our calories which is what we what we do at the moment uh so i think we do need to boost the horticultural sector but in order to do that we're going to have to somehow intervene with the with the grocery retailers and and force them to buy irish first and to not um give preference to horticultural products that are coming from outside the country that that can be produced cheaper because they have cheaper labor costs so it's a complicated economic situation and i'm not an ec economist uh but i do think it needs some some badly needed attention but and and if we grew our produce right here, obviously the emissions from that sector would go down massively. We're not going to import bananas from well, bananas might be a bit of a strange um in fact scratch scratch that we'll not talk about we're not gonna grow bananas in Ireland, but you're right, mushrooms, potatoes. We actually import a lot of potatoes, which is to most people listening, they might think that's absolutely crazy. Like Ireland and potatoes are like two sides of the same coin. And we're losing our skills in these areas too. You know, people used to know how to grow apples and know how to, and every farm in Ireland grew oats to feed horses. And, uh, you know, look, we, we won't be able to do that everywhere and we won't be able to completely switch over to, to producing oat milk instead of milk from cows or whatever. Uh, but there's certainly a place for more horticulture uh, in in Ireland. So we would like to see that. On the, on the transport emissions, I think uh, those tend to be overestimated, but actually a lot, a lot of the, the transport is being done by boats and and that that's a relatively efficient way of of moving products around if you look if you take the emissions per unit of product uh it's not that bad but if they're being flown by air obviously it's a really big problem when it comes to transport emissions brilliant and so what what do you think the government and food industry's focus should be in supporting farmers then to make environmentally friendly choices yeah well we have a 25 percent emissions reduction 
ceiling or target, whatever you want to call it, uh, in agriculture now, but that we have to reach between now and 2030 to kind of meet our, our carbon budgets. Uh, so what Chagas analysis has said is if we implement everything um, that, that, that they know works in Ireland, we would probably get about 80% of the way toward that tar target. Um, so the obvious thing to do is start rolling that stuff out now and that's things like uh you know certain slurry spreading technology and um different types of fertilizer protected urea and different types of breeding of cows and lots of other measures uh but right now there's no implementation at scale and i mean in order to get th that far we we really need pretty much every farmer in the country to do all of these things which we know is a big ask if we're if we've got 45,000 electric vehicles we can't even get enough people to buy electric vehicles to meet that target i think expecting every farmer in the country to adopt all of these measures is going to be very very challenging so we're not going to get all the way there based on existing measures that we know work we'll get part of the way there and then the the big hard question is we need to step back and reevaluate our food system and say okay maybe we do need to not just focus on beef and dairy, but also bring in horticulture and give farmers opportunities to maybe uh, do more agroforestry or you know other types of schemes, peatland rewetting, whatever it is. Um, but ways of of diversifying our food production system uh, so that we're not completely dependent on uh, a livestock-based farming model. And that leads us on very nicely to land use, which I think we're still waiting on an emission ceiling for that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. And um, part of that is because there's a land use review going on being chaired by Professor Alan Matthews. Uh, and our land use situation is complicated and that we have lovely organic peaty soil that could sequester a lot of carbon. Uh, and, and yet the way we're managing our land now, because we drain a lot of our land for agriculture, and because we're not planting trees at the rate we need to, and this is a big issue that our forestry system has reached a lot of planning bottlenecks. Uh, uh, we have challenges when it comes to using our land effectively so that it can help us meet our climate commitments instead of, of hurting us, which is what it's doing at the moment. It's actually emitting more carbon than it's than it's taking in. And this is a real problem. So they've left that category kind of up in the air until that land use review is complete. Uh, but it is going to be incredibly challenging uh, to, to meet that target. And that's why at the moment, uh, what the government has put forward, the Climate Change Advisory Council has said they haven't actually uh, met the budget, the budget doesn't add up. And, and th that is a, a potential legal challenge. So it's a big risk to them to, to keep this budget kind of unplanned and, and, and not adding up because any citizen or any NGO could potentially at some stage take the government to court for failure to, to, to um, meet their legislative commitments. I know, I mean, the government's talked a lot about the importance of bogland, wetland in sequestering carbon, but then we saw the European Commission have actually given them two months to sort that out because, you know, they're standing by while people are still stripping bogs of, of the peat that's in them. So, I mean, they say one thing on the one hand and then this is going on in the background. What would you like to see happen within this land use change in regards to bogs, wetlands? Forests, but also mountains are a key thing. And I've seen it said more than once that we set sheep, sheep off into the mountains, but then no trees can grow there, no plants. And actually, our mountains really shouldn't look like they look. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Parag Fogarty wrote an amazing book called Whittled Away 
that talks about what Ireland used to look like uh, and how that nature has been whittled away and what Ireland could look like if we changed our, our policies and changed our approach to it. And uh, it certainly makes you rethink the landscape. I know I'm, I'm in Connemara a lot. I think it's a beautiful part of the country and, and Connemara should not look like Connemara looks like. And that's because of things like upland grazing. And it's also because farmers had to, had to, you know, develop land and even burn land to to get it into an agricultural status to get their EU subsidies and and to qualify as agricultural land. So so we've destroyed nature in order to avail of these kind of subsidies, uh, and and it's a big problem. So that needs to be revisited. And and in all of this, again, the issue is is capacity and resources. So we don't really have enough people trained to be able to advise farmers in these areas. Like we need probably more environmental scientists as agricultural advisors and we need more agricultural advisors that are trained in environmental science and and ecology uh, and and so that's a, a reskilling that needs to be done by the universities and by agricultural colleges uh, to rethink the the way we look at farming and and nature and that interaction between the two brilliant and what about waste you spoke a little bit about that before how are we doing on that front uh, I've been happy with the progress when you look at what the government has committed to in this idea of moving to a, a circular economy. So right now we live in a, line, a linear economy. It's kind of a make, take and throw away, very disposable uh, model. And we've seen over the years people are getting sick of plastic and we've seen campaigns by, you know, the sick of plastic campaign where people were encouraged to leave their plastic at the till when they when they bought their groceries. And that has driven changes uh, i think you can even see it in some of the grocery stores where they're they're giving options to buy kind of packaging free or more environmentally friendly packaging uh but it's still not by far it's not perfect we're still drowning in in plastic waste and and in packaging that we don't need uh so so I think that the government's plans were kind of ahead of the European. I mean, the Europe is driving this idea of a circular economy model and Ireland has been trying to be on the more ambitious end of the member states and, and been, you know, trying to be ahead of the European legislation. And usually we're the ones that are kind of lagging behind on European legislation, but, but in, or in European directives, but in this case, we've been trying to move ahead. So our plans are ambitious. And I think that this idea of a nationwide deposit and return scheme, which previous governments had, had dismissed the idea of and refused to do, but we know that that's working and, in uh, nearly 40 countries around the world. It's been going on for decades. And we had this in Ireland with glass bottles once upon a time. So I, I wasn't here at the time, but some people remember that they were <laughs> they got their pocket money by um, getting refunds on glass bottles if they returned them. So now obviously we've moved largely away from glass and we have a lot of plastic bottles and we will see the same model rolling out with plastic bottles. And I think we'll probably see it in the next year in grocery stores where you can bring your plastic bottles and you can get a, a, a refund on them for doing so. And that should change the, the situation in the same way we saw with the plastic bag levy, where the countryside was litter littered with plastic bags and now you hardly ever see a plastic bag. And, and that's a great thing, an example of how we can use policy to address these kind of environmental problems. So uh, so I think it's kind of watch this space, but I think we'll start to see some interesting changes in the next year. Yeah, do you think we should be, and I know the return schemes would be a great thing, but obviously, companies that produce plastic are still going to be producing plastic should we be maybe capping that or maybe trying to encourage them to think of going back to the glass bottle model that they used to have because 
obviously 99% of plastics are made from fossil fuels and the two things kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And I think we're we're seeing that at the European level and perhaps it makes sense. That's where being part of Europe really helps in that uh, we're stronger together and we can influence manufacturers. Uh, I mean, we've seen this with like mobile phone technology where it was the EU that got them to all agree to have standard charging uh, devices so that we weren't just drowning in 50 million different types of charger for every phone in our house. Uh, and, and so Europe can kind of force this sort of standardiz standardization among manufacturers. Uh, so I think that will start to happen. But of course, Europe, like you think Ireland moves slow, Europe moves even slower. So that And um, obviously, we've got the cost of living crisis. It's everywhere you turn. It's in all the papers. It's on all the channels. And it's foremost in everyone's mind at the moment, not least because of energy costs. Do you think the government here has handled that well? Uh, well, I mean, not in the sense that we're seeing emissions going up in energy. So that that's a, a, a big loss. Um, I think a lot of us would like more targeted measures toward people who are in energy poverty. And uh, one of the things that civil society and the Climate Advisory Council had asked for was uh, a lot more measures to help people insulate their homes who are in fuel poverty and and so that they to get them out of the need to use fossil fuels as much as possible and we're not seeing those kind of targeted measures we're seeing very kind of coarsely done everybody gets a refund on their energy bills you know and some people could afford to take the hit and some people can't at all and uh it's just unfortunate that that we I, what we're seeing is the government kind of taking the, the quickest and easiest route toward giving reductions and not necessarily looking at it from a more strategic level in terms of targeting those in fuel poverty. And so uh, what we would really have liked to have seen is a massive rollout of insulation in, in you know, lower income households before this winter to try and protect people this winter. And uh, we're certainly not seeing that at any kind of scale. Yeah, and I know obviously renewables targets are one thing, but that's a little bit off in the future. And that's not going to make a difference this winter or next winter. So what happens in the interim is kind of let's set that aside for the moment. But the targets that we have made, do you think they're enough or should they've been should they've been going for a hundred percent? Uh I think our our energy targets have you know, have, have been okay historically. Um, our overall emissions targets, we we know that uh, that globally to to have a 66% chance of staying under two degrees, uh, the world would have to have emissions by 2030. And that is kind of the, that's the, the target that Ireland took in the program for government and in the climate legislation is a 51% emissions reduction by 2030 from 2018 numbers. And uh, that is, you could argue that that, okay, that's in line with what, what, countries should be doing on average. However, we are not average. We are a developed, very privileged country. And, uh, you know, in reality, probably countries like us should have been doing much more and, and developing countries should be expected to do less. Uh, so it would be fair to say we should be doing more than the 51%, uh, but how much more is almost a, a moral or an ethical uh, discussion rather than a scientific discussion? Mm -hmm. And um, we did see sort of renewables come or sorry, LNG come back to the fore recently. I know that the recent report that came out on this said we should be looking at offshore LNG and that maybe 
a station on land wasn't going to work much to the delight of campaigners over in Clare and Kerry. But should we be looking at LNG at all? Uh, different people have different views on that. My my own personal view is we shouldn't be looking at things that that lock us into more fossil fuel use. Um, so there is this idea that we could have some kind of floating, more temporary LNG terminal uh, that that wouldn't lock us in to a long term versus if we build something on land uh, or build something more permanent that would lock us in in the long term. Uh, I'm not an expert in that technology. I don't know how viable that is, but uh, you know, it's something that that was put forward. And 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 certainly if, it, if something like that is done, uh, you know, we need to look at the ownership model and the funding model and how long with the, you know, the de decommissioning plan, how long because we we all know that we do need gas in the short term and uh and obviously we want that to be a secure supply of gas and we don't want to be dependent on countries like russia for that gas uh so there there is an argument for 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 having more gas however we don't want it to mean that we're on gas forever we need to go to a fully uh renewable system with storage and uh, you know, hydrogen and, and other more sustainable fuel sources in the long term. So we need to make sure that whatever we do now doesn't uh, harm those long term ob objectives. And it does seem to some that the fossil fuel industry has kind of grasped this idea of gas as a bridging fuel with both hands. And they're like sort of delighting in extending our reliance on it for a little bit longer. What do you think? Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's all that's always been the way. There's always been a, a cohort of of fossil fuel types that are advocating for more fossil fuel and more gas. And and as a business, you can understand they're they're sitting on trillions of euro of stranded assets because they we you know we know we have all this fossil fuel in the ground that they were expecting they could sell and burn for forever more. And now countries around the world are saying, no, actually we can't burn any of that and your asset is worth nothing. Uh, so there are always going to be people pushing to, to keep burning that asset so that they can keep making more money. So um, that doesn't surprise me, but I do feel like uh, they're losing ground and they don't have the power that they had even five years ago, you know, that that I think the energy security review that came out um, recently from the government was was pretty fair and and showed a clear trajectory moving away from fossil fuels. And, and I think the writing is on the wall now for that industry. And the, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I did think it was interesting, though, that Europe decided to brand gas green and it's it's taxonomy. So. I mean, do you think the fossil fuel lobby had a bit of a hand in that? Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, at the European level, I think it's been harder than at the Irish level because of various, you know, sort of different political systems in each member state. And um, and I think the fossil fuel industry ha is probably spending a lot more time lobbying in Brussels than they are lobbying in Ireland. Uh, and that's clear in the in the kind of uh, text that's being drafted. So, yeah, it is much more of a worry at the European level um, in terms of their power and their influence. And they may have been at work in England recently too. I mean, we've seen a couple of questionable decisions, haven't we, by the new PM, Liz Truss. I mean, she's lifted the fracking ban. Then we've got the latest announcement, which is we're going to open licenses for oil and gas again. Well, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think the UK, I mean, is politically in a very different place than us. We happen to have a Green Party in government right now. I don't know how much longer we'll have a Green Party in government, but you can see that... Um, that they've had influence in the in the program for government. There are green fingers all over it. And uh, so it's been amazing here to see how 
how different this government's language is when it comes to climate and, and fossil fuels compared to previous Irish governments. Either It's, it's radically different. Um, however, I don't think we can assume that it'll always be the way. There will be another government in a few years' time, and it might be more like the British government. And that will be a very, very scary uh, situation for those of us who are worried about the climate. And that's why legislation was so important here in particular because now we have this stronger climate legislation which means that any pre any future government that comes in no matter how conservative uh will have to abide by that and that's why i think people are still pu pushing for more legislation here like we have a we have a fracking ban here in ireland so we can't do the kind of things that we're seeing liz trust do um and and so that's where legislation becomes very very important yeah and on a global scale though and i mean a lot of leaders are looking around to see what everybody else is kind of doing do you think leaders that even though the science is saying one thing they're buying into a different viewpoint do you think they do the world a disservice yeah um it's hard to know. I mean, I've certainly been watching the Brazilian elections with uh, huge interests because I think what was going on with Bolsonaro and the Amazon rainforest in the last few years and the burning of the rainforest, which affects all of us and his complete um, dismissal of any kind of climate agreement uh, was very worrying and very damaging for, for uh, the climate agenda globally. Um, so it, there are always actor, bad actors. Um, and we, of course, we saw it with Donald Trump when he was president in the United States. Um, so so the climate negotiations are, I think they're a useful tool. I think, I think the Paris Agreement has been a very useful tool for campaigners across the world to hold governments accountable. If you were a country that signed the Paris Climate Agreement, you made a commitment to help the world stay below two degrees or 1.5 degrees of warming. And, and that's one tool in our toolbox, but it is not everything. And it, and it in itself is not going to solve the climate problem. That's why we need things like legislation, national legislation and policies and advocacy groups and, and uh, real citizen engagement across the world. Um, and unfortunately now the COP that's coming up is in Egypt. I think last year, you know, it was in Glasgow and we saw huge engagement by civil society and thousands and thousands of people on the street demanding that these leaders do more. And, and when I spoke to negotiators who were there, they said that made a huge difference, that it really did put the pressure on uh, on the inside in terms of trying to get stuff done. Uh, now we're going to see it in Egypt, which is just generally a much more closed country and it's just hard hard to get to and uh we're not going to see the same level of civil society engagement which means we won't see that same level of of pressure um and that is that is worrying but i don't think we can rest all our hopes on global climate negotiations i think it's just one relatively small piece of the puzzle to be honest yeah i mean like a lot of people do feel a bit helpless at times and i can understand that you know it does seem like an insurmountable problem doesn't it but things that we do in our daily lives can make a difference yeah, I I think uh I mean they call climate change a wicked problem because it, everything we do has an impact on climate change and so that can feel really overwhelming that you have to change your whole uh way of living, your whole lifestyle and and we know like if it, even if we want to change one thing like we want to get more exercise or we want to get more sleep, that's that in itself is really hard to do. So telling someone oh, actually you need to change your diet and you need to change how you get to work and you need to change your whole house and that's that seems impossible. So I think that is completely understandably overwhelming to everyone. But uh, then when you look at the, the things we need to do, 
uh, a lot of them are, are great for lots of reasons. Like, uh, you know, I just bought an electric bike recently and I'm doing way more cycling because it's just easier for me. And I love, I love it. And I, for the first time ever, I've started uh, taking my bike on the train and then cycling to, to meetings from the train station. And it's so much more enjoyable than driving two hours to get to a meeting. Uh, so, so I think when we start to see what these things actually involve, we start to go, actually, you know, I prefer, I prefer to be more active in my transport and I prefer a warmer, more comfortable home and I prefer lower energy bills, uh, you know, and, and um, I think I prefer more locally produced food, you know, I, and to know the farmers who produce my food. Uh, so I think if you see it from that lens, which is the lens that I have always seen it, the climate action is actually the world I want to live in, it's a better world for me and it's a better world for my for my child, uh, then it's not overwhelming. It's just obvious that, of course, we would want to do these things. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe to Tipping Point wherever you get your podcasts.